Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Your life is made of, of all of these small moments. Mm. The more you can like slow down and tune into them, the more just joy you have in your life, which is what else is the purpose of all of this? Welcome back to episode 61 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode was made possible thanks to our friends over at Neon One. Today, I'm interviewing Goli Kalkarin. Goli is a lawyer turned entrepreneur, which is a fancy way of saying she quit law, tried a bunch of things, and happened upon an idea that she turned into a business. She is the host of the Lessons from a Quitter podcast, where she uses her platform to destigmatize quitting and provide resources and inspiration to individuals looking to pivot in their established careers. This episode isn't all about quitting your job, though, unless you want to. It's more about how to build a more intentional, fulfilling life, no matter what. In this episode, we are unpacking the roots of maladaptive behaviors, those things we do to ourselves that are not in fact good for ourselves, and how much of them come from feeling that we can't trust ourselves and that we need external validation. We also dive deep into a topic that hits home with a lot of us, and that's our toxic relationship with money. We look at why it's so important for women in particular to push back against the cues we receive about money, greed, and wanting more. There is so much actionable advice and points of reflection inside this conversation. So let's dive in and introduce you to Goalie. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Goalie Kalkarin. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So let's just kick it right off with you telling everyone a little bit about you and what brings you to this moment in time. Yeah, thanks so much. I had a previous career as an attorney. I was one of many people who had put my head down, decided I was going to be a lawyer at a very young age, at like 11, and never wavered and did well in school, went to a great law school, started practicing as a lawyer. And like many people in a lot of careers, found myself very unhappy, extremely just miserable. And I worked as a lawyer in a couple of different fields. I ended up being a public defender for a number of years. And I was very passionate about the work, but it was not sustainable for me. And I eventually quit in 2014 when I had my first son, not really knowing what I was going to do and feeling very lost and ashamed and like a failure and, and all of the things that tend to come with that big of an identity shift because I'd never done anything else and I had no idea what else I would do. And then fast forward, that led me on this journey of really figuring out who I was and what I wanted to do. And eventually I I started a photo booth business that sort of just shifted who I was. And I ultimately started a podcast in 2018 called Lessons from a Quitter. And that's really the platform that I run now. And it's it was because I wanted to have this conversation. I saw so many people so unhappy in their careers. Mm. But it was just this idea of especially if you're quote unquote successful in society's Mm. eyes, like you're doing something that other people respect or has prestige and you're making good money you've made it and you're like, this can't be it. And I found myself there. And now that sort of led me into mindset coaching and career coaching. And now I'm a master certified coach and I help people really on their own, their own inner work. And I don't do career coaching in the sense of let's work on your resume. It's more Mm -hmm. figuring out the people pleasing and the perfectionism and all the things that keep us stuck because what's everyone going to say? And what will it look like Mm -hmm. if I start over? And I don't want to be a failure and all that stuff. So I run programs and I have a podcast and social. And so that's what brings me to today. What I do today and I love it. (laughs) I love it. So do you find 
when you start to dig into some of those themes with folks, the people pleasing, the perfectionism, those are scary, big topics. There's a lot to unravel there. Do you have folks start to dip their toe in and be like, eek, not ready yet? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely. And I think that's why I actually get people who really listen to me for a really long time before Mm. they ever join my program. And that's why I love doing a podcast because I think for myself included, it took me a while to really even come to terms with myself, like even admit to myself that I was going to quit. These are very scary ideas because you're changing your identity. And if I'm not the overachiever, if I'm not the one that makes everybody Mm -hmm. happy, then who am I? That's all I've ever been my whole life. And so I do find a lot of people are not ready to work with me in the beginning because it's very overwhelming to take in Mm -hmm. these concepts and change how you're going to relate to the world. And so usually when they come to me, that they've been listening for about six months to a year and they're like, okay, I've dipped my toe in. <laughs> I, everything you say, people always tell me, I feel like you're in my head. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're saying every experience I've mm-hmm. had. And then they become more comfortable to do the deeper work. And it's okay. I clearly have this issue. I want to address it. I don't want to keep living like this. And then they're ready to get going. Are there a few kind of core lies that you feel like we tell ourselves that are the hardest to break from? Yes, I think that... And it's really interesting when you say this, all of us have the same exact fears and it's like a handful. There's not millions. It all comes down to the same thing. And I will tell you every single thing, every single maladaptive behavior we have underlying it is some kind of self-worth issue. So the reason we do anything, the reason we want to be perfect, we don't want anyone to criticize us. The reason we want other people to be happy, we just want to feel like we're worthy. We want people to tell us we're good enough. The reason we achieve all of this stuff. So that's the core of what you have to work at is giving yourself that validation that we so desperately seek from everybody around us. And so the two biggest things that I think are the bedrock of what I work on and I see as like the root of every issue, one is this lie that has told us that we can't trust ourselves. So it's like a lack of self-trust. And so we're constantly seeking other people's opinions or wanting someone else to tell us the path because we, for some reason, believe like Mm. what I feel within me, whether you want to call it intuition or your gut or whatever it is, just the choice I make, I can't rely on that. One is self-trust and one is shame. Mm. Really the bedrock of every maladaptive behavior is this underlying thing of shame. And there's this fear of maybe I'm not good enough. All of the voices that we hear, they're constantly telling us how terrible we are and I'm such a hot mess and I never get it. And why am I? It's all this shame that doesn't need to be there. It's really unnecessary kind of suffering that has been implanted in us from when we were children through every experience that we've had. And I think when you can clean up shame and you can really work on trusting yourself, everything else is super easy. It's easy Mm. then to put on boundaries. It's easy to not be perfect. Mm. You know, if I don't have to put on an air that I'm somehow inhuman and I don't make mistakes, if I can just show up as my fully flawed self because I don't find shame in that, I'm just like, yeah, of course I made a mistake. Of course I'm going to look over things. I have a human brain. It's so much easier to not have to need to be perfect, to not have anxiety all the time, to not have the need for everybody to like us. Because then it's okay. You don't like me. That's cool. I like me. You don't have to. Everyone doesn't have to like me. And so those are really what I work on. I think like it shows itself in different forms. We all adopt a different way. But it's really just getting to the core of that. How do I increase that kind of self-trust and that self-worth so that I don't have to run from this shame that like doesn't really need to be there? Okay. Wow. So you're hitting on this confidence piece, I think. Like I've been thinking a lot about confidence recently and how the perception I think of confidence is that it comes with a certain level of external validation. And I even heard this from my parents recently. My business has grown in the last few years and they were like, yeah, it's made you so confident. And I was Mm. like, no, my confidence grew my business and my confidence came from not being afraid of publicly messing up, of saying the wrong thing, of standing by myself through those things. And so it's this really weird piece that you're talking about, or it's been really weird for me, is as I've embraced more imperfection, my confidence has grown. Yeah, 100%. Which is just the opposite of what we're taught. And that's such a key thing that you hit on, because I think what we mistake is there's a difference between the confidence that we talk about in our society, which really is the mastery of some kind of skill. And that Mm. only comes from repetition of that skill. So 
by definition, you cannot be confident in something new that you're doing, something that you've never done before. Mm -hmm. And so this is where a lot of perfectionism comes from. It's I have to only do the things I'm good at because that's the only thing I can be confident in. I know how to do this. Now I can feel okay. Versus self-confidence, which is confidence in yourself, which Mm -hmm. is I have no idea how to do this thing. And I have no idea how it's going to turn out. But I know that I can rely on myself to figure it out. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm going to get it right every time. It's not that like I'm just going to knock it out of the park. It's that, again, going back to the self-trust, I think that's the foundation of even confidence is that as you were saying, as you've built your own confidence to mess up, to show up and embarrass yourself or whatever and feel whatever emotion you have to feel, it's like a muscle. You gain that confidence. Like, yeah, bring it on. Whatever the next mm. thing is. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I can't know when I'm going to post something and maybe people are going to criticize or maybe I mess up and I mm. have a typo and I get embarrassed or whatever the worry is that people have. But I'm like, hey, I'll have my own back. I know I'll figure it out. I'll fix it. And that's what I think a lot of people don't typically think of as a definition of confidence. And I agree with you that the more you build that confidence, the less you need the other kind. It's, yeah, maybe I don't have this skill mastered. That's okay. I can still show up. I can still do it. I can still have a lot of pride. I can still have faith in myself to figure out the next step and the next and keep going. Yeah. I love that. And I feel like in today's world, in a number of different professions, legal, maybe not being one of them, there is less of that knowing at all or knowing enough confidence, right? It's about being adaptive. It's about being resourceful. It's about learning as the world evolves. And so you're not going to especially in the nonprofit sector, I'm thinking about a number of the people who listen to this. And I see this with fundraisers a lot. My biggest thing when I started fundraising was, oh my gosh, I'm so uncomfortable. There's no way that good fundraisers feel this uncomfortable. I must be a bad fundraiser because I don't like talking about money. And nobody was talking about it. The fact that actually just talking about money is this really scary, vulnerable thing and all fundraisers feel it. And so what I needed was, self-confidence, but what I was looking for was some level of expert confidence that doesn't really exist in a position that's so relational and dynamic. Absolutely. And I think, again, even this whole expert confidence, it's this myth, right? Because nobody knows, even let's say in law or medicine, like I deal work with a lot of doctors and the pressure they put on themselves to be perfect Mm. to never make a mistake is humanly impossible. And that's not what your role is as a doctor or as a lawyer. We've done a really big disservice to give this lie that somehow you Mm. get to someplace and everything because that's just not humanly possible. And so I think that's often the cause of a lot of imposter syndrome is Mm. we've been fed this lie and we all walk around with this persona or this armor of, I have it all figured out. And then inside, we all are filled with doubts and fears. And we all are thinking like, I don't know all of this stuff, like obviously, Mm. or I might make a mistake. And so you start thinking, it's just me. Everyone Mm. else has it together. And so that's why you see so many people suffer from imposter syndrome because instead of everybody talking about, no, I'm terrified half the time. (laughs) I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just figuring it out. I have tons of doubts. And I think, I wish I had these tools when I was a lawyer because a lot of what burned me out was that this air that people put on as if they know everything. Mm. And now I know that to be categorically false. And when I even when I quit, it was like a lot of the partners, the people that were much higher up would start confiding in, oh my God, I wish Mm. I could leave. I feel the same way. I don't know what I'm doing. I would have people that were partners working like 15 years in the field. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm like, that's also not true. It's this, it just Mm. goes to show that Exactly what you're talking about is the only way is where there is doubt and there's mistakes and there's no perfection. And we're all, yeah, mm. you, you learn more as you work in a field, but that doesn't like mean that all of a sudden there's never room for learning or all that stuff. Yeah. And because of the perfectionism piece being a black or white thing, it's okay. If you aren't perfect, then you must not know at all what you're doing versus exactly. being like, I know a fair amount about what I'm doing and I'm learning a lot. <laughs> A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that all or nothing thinking where it's either I'm perfect like this person and I have it together, which is why so many of us have this and we go after these goals and we think when I get there, all of a sudden I'll be a different human than every answer and has all this confidence. And we get there and we're like, oh, I have the same brain and I feel exactly the way I did. I just now have this degree or I know, Mm. you know, I'm doing this work. I got this job title and I still feel just as insecure and it really rocks a lot of us. But You're absolutely right. I think that it's never... Part of the problem is that we don't acknowledge how much we do know. We focus on the little bit that maybe we don't. So we start telling ourselves, oh, I clearly, if I don't know 100%, means I'm a fraud and that everyone's going to find out that I don't know anything. 
that's also not true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it becomes, yeah, this double-edged sword that we don't acknowledge what we do know and we don't realize that it never has to be all or nothing. And it never yeah. is. I'm curious for you, because I feel as my self-confidence has grown, you said this piece a few minutes ago about how then these other things become easy. Once you trust yourself and you have some level of control around the shame, right? But I would say for me, it doesn't mean that when I throw down a new boundary, I don't feel uncomfortable. I still experience discomfort. I just don't spiral out and change my behavior. So I'm curious, what is your tolerance for that level of discomfort? Or what do you work with your clients around? How do they know when they're trusting themselves more, but they're still feeling this discomfort? Because I think this is another place we can get a little bit black and white. Oh, I got uncomfortable. So I guess I don't know how to do this thing yet. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I definitely, part of what I work on with my clients is really just learning how to process negative emotion because it's not Mm -hmm. going anywhere. And the more... Mm -hmm you push out of that comfort zone, by definition, you will be uncomfortable. Mm. And I think that what we work on is nothing has gone wrong when you feel fear and even like disappointment when things don't work out and all of the negative emotions that come from trying new things, failing. Like none of us like to fail. It's not Mm. as I go out and I'm shooting to fail. It's just that it's going to happen if I want to also be successful in Mm. what I'm doing. And so we work on that and we try to differentiate So in psychology, there's term clean pain versus dirty pain. And so clean pain is what happens in our lives. All feelings are fleeting. All of them are valid. A concept that I really teach a lot on and and has really helped me is that life is always 50-50. It doesn't matter Mm. how much you accomplish, how much money you make. There's just going to be negative emotions. And when we can stop being afraid of them, it's a lot easier to process and manage And so we work on figuring out, look, what is the clean pain? For instance, if I do a presentation and it doesn't go the way I want it to, and I mess up, let's say, there might be the disappointment that it didn't go. There Mm. might be the embarrassment that my colleagues watched me mess up or whatever. That's We don't want like toxic positivity where it's like, everything is fine. I'm good. Okay. Yeah. Mm. This didn't go the way I wanted. How do I process that clean pain versus dirty pain, which is really the unnecessary suffering that we add on. So it's the Mm. stories we attach, which is like, I'll never be good at this. I'm terrible, Mm. whatever, lawyer. Everybody else knows more than me. It's these stories that we create a lot of suffering where I think there may be a difference between guilt and shame. And I think Mm. guilt might be, I did something wrong versus shame being like, I am wrong. There's something Mm. wrong with me. And so I think guilt is absolutely a healthy emotion to have to help you live along with your own morals and values. I don't know how valuable shame is in a lot of instances. And I think the question becomes, where is that guilt? valid and part mm. of the the clean pain and where is it that we've been socialized to feel guilty every time somebody is upset right just because somebody mm. else is upset doesn't mean i did something wrong it just means that maybe they don't like that there's a boundary or whatnot this is an, an art more than a science it's really figuring out for myself where do i want to feel guilty because yes i messed up and i can again take in the fact that I'm a human and I'll make mistakes and I'll make amends. And where do I not want to feel guilty? Because just because I've said no to somebody doesn't Mm. mean I've done anything wrong, right? They might Mm. still feel a human emotion and get upset that I told them no. And I don't have to sit and wallow in the fact that I'm a terrible person. Because if I'm a people pleaser, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to feel bad saying Mm. no to somebody. So it's really just figuring out where is this a healthy emotion that I want to actually like process and let myself feel and be okay with. And where am I really just laying on a lot of unnecessary suffering Mm. by creating stories for myself? Yeah, I love that. I had someone on the podcast, Dietra, who's a coach, and she had this really amazing quote where she said, she was like, we're told that our life is made up of all the circumstances or situations. She was like, but it's not. It's made up of what we've made those circumstances mean. 100%. And so, yeah, I I couldn't agree with that more. So I'm curious, one of the things I feel like my clients really struggle with is, okay, they start to see these patterns of sort of people-pleasing, perfectionism. They start to maybe even be able to deal with this clean pain, dirty pain piece. And then they're looking to redefine what success looks like for them. And they're, okay, so if I'm not going to buy into just, because a lot of what can get, roped into that as growth, scale, all these different things. And I'm just curious, how do you help folks or think about how people can redefine success for them in a way that feels 
I don't know, maybe it doesn't feel soothing. Maybe it is always uncomfortable, but it's like contradictory to the type of success we get external validation from. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And again, when I talk a lot about self-trust is part of this idea that like we will ever get to some destination where all of a sudden, like we have this belief that we are at some point like, static beings. This is what's going to be my Mm. definition of success. And once I know that, then that's it. And I have to get there. But all of it is fluid. All of it is Mm. ever changing. You're an ever changing person. And so what you might decide is success for you right now in a month, in a day, Mm. in a year, you may decide, I actually want a lot of growth now. I actually want that. And so I say that to say, because I don't think there's like a bad or a good way of having success. Mm. And I think it's really important when I talk about really trusting yourself and checking in. What is it that I want? So when I work with the people I work with, it's really giving yourself the time to figure out why do I want this thing? Is it because I'll think I'll be good enough if I make this much money or my parents will finally be proud of me or whatever? Mm. Those aren't great reasons to go after things. And so when we work on defining success for ourselves, it's a wide spectrum. Some people really do want to have the big company and make tons of money and have Mm -hmm. a lot of people under them. And for other people, success is I want to work four hours a day and I want to be able to read my book and I don't want to have any employees or and I want to work for somebody else or whatever it is. It's all valid. It's just a matter of what is it that you want. And I think for a lot of people, what I try to work on is, and that's okay if it changes. We often think there's some right answer that I have to mm-hmm. find and I have to know mm-hmm. that and I have to define it and that's who I am. And when I let go of the reins a little bit, and I know for myself, for instance, in my own business, of course, I'm going to keep changing. And every season for me is going to change. I have two young children. What I want now versus what I want in five years will be very different. And that's okay. And I keep getting to know myself. I envision it. You take a step, you evaluate, you pivot. That's all of life. And so as I do this, I might even get caught in, no, I really believe that what success means to me is X, Y, and Z. is making this much money and working this much one up. And I might get there and be like, oh, why Mm. did I say yes to these things? That just gives me more information about myself. Instead of making a circumstance mean something, attaching a story, instead of me saying, see, I don't even know what I want. Mm. I can't trust myself. I thought I wanted this and I don't. And it means that I have no idea. I'm just giving into, let's say, society. I just take that as, oh, what was I missing? What red flags was Mm. I, huh? I was still... Yeah, I'm still seeking that validation. I don't beat myself up for that. Of course I still am. That's Mm -hmm. what I've been programmed my whole life to do. (laughs) Of course I'm going to keep falling into that. Of course that feels good to me, right? So it's like with each thing, I either just remind myself exactly what you're saying. Oh, why am I saying yes to this again? This is not the business I want. And just allowing myself to change my mind. Because then sometimes Mm. I'm like, maybe I do want to make a lot of money. Mm. Maybe I do want (laughs) to grow this and have a huge business. That sounds like fun. Maybe I'll learn a ton about myself in managing employees, like none of it is right or wrong. It's just the more you learn to quiet down and listen to what is it that I want and why do I want those things? Like get really clear on Mm. the reasons behind the decision, not the decision. And if you like those reasons, like it's not because Mm. I just want other people to like me, then I'm going to try it. And then I might change my mind again. And there's no like set point where you just become like you've arrived and now you know everything about yourself and you're never going to change your mind again. Yeah, I totally agree with everything that you said and recognizing the Venn diagram that's our lives, particularly as female leaders, just managing all the different pieces of life. And so I think sometimes we think about success in one of our circles or in this siloed compartment, and then it rubs against this other part of our lives. And we're like, how do I think about success or what I want at the meeting point of these things, not just in this area of my life. And it sounds like that's something that you allow for a lot of dynamic evolution of that. Have you noticed any to be particularly helpful in folks thinking through the intersections of their life in that way? Yeah, like I said, I think the biggest thing that helps people when we talk about this stuff is really slowing ourselves down to understand that there are seasons of life and it's all going to change. So your values and wants and needs are going to change. And that's okay. I think a lot of times people think they just need to, like I said, like kick mm-hmm. something and that be the thing. And so I think what has helped people is when you slow it down, it helps relieve a lot of the stress and the anxiety. Where it's, I don't need to know what I'm going to want in 10 years. I need to know in this season of my life with my two young children, what's my choice for me right now? And I think really having the time to just explore that, like Mm. just explore in a perfect world, if I had everything I needed, what would I choose, right? Now, maybe I don't have all those. Maybe I have 
financial needs and I have other things that, Mm. but at least I have my North star for me right now. Mm. This is what I want. And I know for me, this was really difficult. When I quit the law, I had such extreme views on what I thought I was going to be and what I thought I wouldn't like skip a beat when I had kids and I would go back to work and Mm. I wanted to work time and I wanted to climb this corporate ladder. And of course, as soon as I had a child, everything changed and Mm. I didn't know how I would feel. But I also, when I quit for me, I knew from that beginning that being a stay-at-home mom was not an option because I would lose my mind. I'm just not built Mm. with that much patience. I just know it's like the worst thing for me and my children. And I felt very lost because I felt like it didn't fit in either camp. And it seemed Mm. like it was only those two camps. Like you're either a career person Mm. and you're climbing that ladder or you want to be a stay-at-home mom and you want to really pour into your children when they're young. And and all of those things are great. But I was like, neither one is me. How do I have something in the middle? Because I really do want to have my own business or work and do things that I find intellectually stimulating and push me. And I also don't want to work all the time. And I want to, I had kids for a reason and I want to see them and I want to be able to be a part of their Mm. lives. And I remember feeling very lost in that sense. And now when I look back, I realize like, yeah, I just know myself and I know that what I needed to feel good about my life and feel fulfilled and feel like, what was that kind of percentage for me? Mm. And again, I say that as my kids get older, that changes. And so I think, again, going back to just like self-trust, it was really me just learning at every stage, you're allowed to decide what's right for you. Mm. Nobody else can tell you what it is. It is allowed to change. You are allowed to change and you're going to, right? It's funny when we think about it in our present moment, it's hard to see how we're going to change. But when you look back, you're not the same person you were when you were in your 20s, right? Like you're not the same person you are in your 30s or 40s. Like you change, you evolve. And so of course, the things that you want change, the things that you think are important change. Nothing has gone wrong. We take it as like, I was living a lie. I was just doing what everybody else said. I was so lost. It's no, like that was important to me. Maybe making money in my 20s was the most important thing to me. Okay. And then my priorities change. And now something else is more important. And so I think really slowing down and understanding Mm -hmm. like what season am I in now? It's going to change in the future. What's important to me right now, just for me in both areas. I always try to get people to do really ideal vision, best case scenario, Mm. not because I think it's something that you need to get. You don't need to get anywhere to be happy or to really be able to have a fulfilled life. But I think so often we suppress what we actually want because we don't think it's possible So Mm. it's always, oh, no, I don't need to make a lot of money or I don't need to stay at home with my kids because maybe we don't think right now in my Mm. current situation that's possible. And so we think we're like protecting ourselves. It's self-preservation, right? I don't want to pine for something I can't have because that hurts. But then I find so many people tell themselves they don't know what they want. Like, I have no idea what I want to do. I don't know. And it's because like you haven't let those desires come up Mm. because you're constantly shutting yourself down. Don't be ridiculous. We can't run a business. We can't make (laughs) money. We can't only work four hours a day. That's not possible. And I always say, just let yourself go there. Maybe I can't have that. But what's important to me right now is I want more time at home. I want more time with my kids. I want to make more money. I want whatever it is. I have to know that in order for me to be able to do anything or create any life that gets me closer to that. And so I really think allowing yourself just time to dream and be ruthlessly Mm. honest with what is it that I want can help you really navigate towards a life that's more fitting. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Okay. There's so many things you said in there that I think are so important. This piece that you're saying around the grace, the permission to change, to try something and this spaciousness that you're talking about, like in order for reflection to come through or answers from yourself, you have to have space to ask yourself those questions and to listen, to not jump straight from that question into a board meeting where 12 people are telling you their opinion about it, but to really sit with yourself. And for me also to sit with myself after I've done the thing. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned over the years is that 
I don't know how something's going to feel until I do it. I just traveled to speak, came home for three days, traveled again to a big conference. It was the first time I had, my daughter's almost three. It was the first time I had done that with her. And I was like, I have no idea how this is going to go. I have no idea if it's going to be better to just be on the road that whole time or to come back for three days. That's going to throw her off. I have no idea. But I was like, I'm going to try it because how else am I going to figure it out? And then I scheduled on my calendar two days after I came home, sit and journal about that travel schedule. I feel like that has been so helpful for me to actually make sure I'm taking time to say, I'm trying this thing out. I'm practicing. No idea if it's going to work. And then to really sink into how did it feel to do that? I love that so much. You're absolutely right. I think we don't take the time to process things and actually check in with what worked, what didn't work, what you do differently, what lit you up, what drained your energy. That's how you learn more about yourself. But I will make one caveat is that I think a lot of times we fall into this all or nothing thinking. And I think people think, unless I have luxurious amounts, like I have a whole week Mm. to sit down and journal that I can't do it. And none of us have that time typically. And so of course, I have kids and I am working. Who has the time to do this? And I will actually say, I don't think it takes all that much time. If you have it, great. If you can go on a weekend retreat and in the desert (laughs) and have the time, fantastic. But even if you don't have that time, it's really, can I sit 20 minutes before I go to bed in journal? Can Mm -hmm. I, instead of scrolling Instagram, can I schedule that time for myself? Can I pick one hour a week to take as my time of reflecting on that week or this thing that I'm going to do. I think that when we don't realize really the compound effect that things have in our lives, Mm. and it's not, it rarely ever is these very huge decisions or huge Mm. things that you need to do. It's a million little baby steps. And I agree with you that just being able to schedule in time to check in with yourself, even if that's a 20 minute walk once a week to just be like, what is working? What is not for me? One journaling thing like that consistently over time makes such a huge difference. And so I just say that because I think a lot of times people come when I talk about doing the same things, I agree with you, like 100% people will come to me and I don't have any time. And I'm like, (laughs) then you need it more than anybody else. If you find yourself scrambling around and completely frazzled every single day, like if you can't find 20 minutes for yourself, then something has to change. You need to change something in your life because it's not true that you can't find that time. It's that you need to give up the fear of asking somebody else for help or numbing ourselves with all this other stuff because we feel so bad. We're so tired. We're doing all this stuff. All of that stuff, again, is normal. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but really being honest. So can I carve out 15 minutes in my lunch break instead of working at my computer and spend it journaling? Like we can all find that time. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. And I, like one of my practices is driving home from daycare, thinking about my three top priorities for the day. I realized I would zone out on the drive or I'd call a friend or whatever. And I was like, you know what? That's going to be my like day start. It's what are my three priorities for the day. And sometimes I'll voice dictate it to myself and that's it. And so I'm doing that anyways. And I I totally agree. And I'm a big fan of Dr. BJ Fogg's like habit and behavior design work. Mm -hmm. And he talks a lot about anchoring behaviors. And so one of my other big positive self-talk practices is while I wash my face every day, I'm already washing my face. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. Mm. I'm already there. So let's just do the thing then. I love that. (laughs) I love that. That's yeah. A perfect way of doing it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. That's the thing is as we're doing other things, I do the same thing. And it's like, this is the thing is I think that we think things take so much time and they don't, they actually, if you're doing it, what takes time is us like worrying about doing it and thinking about it. For me, I'll take 10 minutes in the morning to just plan out what my day is going to be and the three things that I'm going to work on. And that gives me so much more direction and Mm. helps me stop wasting time constantly thinking like, what's the next thing I'm going to do or jumping from task to task. And so it's not that it's the amount of time. It's just intentionality Mm. kind of behind it is when I'm doing this thing, can I be a little bit more intentional? Like you were just talking about, even can I in my drive, instead of listening to something on the radio, turning it off and just sitting with my own thoughts, thinking through Mm. what the day is going to be or whatever it is. Yeah. I think the more intentional we become, the more we can find those pockets of time where we can make it work. Yeah. And if I'm totally honest, though, I think the times in my life I've avoided that more has been when I've been more nervous to listen to myself. Maybe something's going to come through that I don't want to come through because that's going to be really hard. I demoted myself when I was leading an organization and it took chronic pain to finally like really wake Mm. me up. And it was not the right fit between me and the board chair for a number of different reasons. And the response that everyone had was, well, why don't you just go lead another organization? Just go be an executive director somewhere else. And I was like, because 
I don't want to be an executive director. Mm. But for a long time, I had been avoiding sitting with myself with some of those questions because gosh, I was scared of all the identity shifting that was Mm going to come with making those changes. And I think once I learned to have my own back more and also adopted, I think a lot more of what you're talking about, this sort of fluidity and like gray space and constant learning, those things certainly became easier, but sometimes it's hard to get quiet because we don't want to hear what we have to say. A hundred percent. Absolutely. We were spot on and it's a lot of the fear. And it's also, and that's why in the beginning when I talked about shame, we have the worst inner critic voices. And mm. when you haven't learned how to manage that voice and turn it down and really learn to have your own back mm. and build your own self-confidence and self-love and self-worth and self-trust, all of those things, it's terrifying to be alone with your thoughts because they're all terrible. Mm. It's like you're spending all day just beating yourself up. Like you're only focusing on the things you didn't do or the mm. things you did wrong or the time you yelled at your kid or whatever. And so who wants to spend time in there? That's why so many of us are, we're trying to like out hustle those negative voices. It's mm. like, if I just keep myself busy, then maybe I'll feel good enough by the end of the day. Maybe I'll tell myself I did a good enough job as a mom or as an executive director or whatever, because I'm constantly just keeping busy because mm. it's so terrifying to sit with that voice. And part of that is like, it's not until you can make that voice conscious. It's not until you can sit with it where you really start realizing how terrible it is. And you start really having to reckon like, why am I talking to myself like this? Mm -hmm. I would never allow this with anybody else. I would never talk to anybody else like this. And I just think that you're absolutely right is that we are scared of silence. That's why Mm -hmm. so many of us are just myself included, by the way, I'm not in any way like saying that I'm, but we're so distracted. We never want to be like still. So it's like Mm -hmm. either we're on our phone or just scroll. We have to fill every moment because I think that there is a lot of fear about what happens in that silence. I had my first coach when I was, I think I was 21 or 22. It was before coaching was really the thing it is today. But I had a little professional development money from this nonprofit. And my boss was like, I think you're going to really love this woman. She's a leadership coach. And I was running a lot at the time and also doing yoga. And I would leave for Shavasana. I would literally get up and walk out of the yoga class. And the woman, my coach was like, your goal today for this week is to stay for one minute of Shavasana. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't have time for this, whatever. And she was like, nope, one minute you have to stay. And Mm -hmm. then ultimately worked me up to not leaving the class early. But that narrative around what we don't have time for, for me, the moment I hear myself say, I don't have time for something, that is like a huge indicator for me that there's something to look at there. And it really started with that moment. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, that's such a good thing to notice. And we're all like that. It's almost this like currency and it's like a badge of honor. Mm. Everybody's like, oh, she's so busy. Just Mm. we keep ourselves on these hamster wheels. And I think that we're all terrified to quote unquote waste time. And then we end up wasting so much time because we just don't create any space for ourselves to rest and relax and be with ourselves. And so you're absolutely right to say like, when you hear that voice saying, there's not enough time, I don't have time, or this is a waste of time. It's a huge indication to look at, is that really true? And what am I scared of just sitting with this? And what I work with a lot of people on is this, I try to teach my people, if you can't learn to slow down and enjoy where you're at, there will never be a time that you will get there. I think it's, oh, once I get to some place, then all of a sudden I'm going to have the money and the thing to slow down. But you've trained your brain to constantly tell you that as soon as you're not doing anything, like you should be doing more you're being lazy. There's so much more. You have 800 projects you should get to. We should get a jump start. You know, and when you have that, there is no other place that you just all of a sudden slow down and learn to relax. And so when you start realizing this is your life today, not the future, today is the one life right now. And if you can't take some time to sit in Shavasana and just breathe and relax and maybe enjoy the end of that yoga class or take the 15 minutes to enjoy your cup of coffee before you just scarf it down and on to the next thing, there just doesn't come a time when that happens. So if that is important to you, there's no other place you need to be. There's no more money that you need. There's no title that you need. Your kids don't need to be a certain age. How do I practice one minute? I do a challenge in my group and it's like a joy challenge and it's find 15 minutes mm-hmm. to find something that brings you joy every single day. Because once you learn to cultivate that, it becomes a part of your practice. You look for it. It's like, hey, mm-hmm. can I go on this walk and just listen to the birds and watch the trees and not 
need to listen to a podcast and multitask? How do I sit and drink my coffee? Because I love the taste of coffee. How do I actually stay present for it? Instead of not even realizing how I scarfed it down while I'm writing the email. It's not these big things. Like your life is made of, of all of these small moments. Mm. The more you can like slow down and tune into them, the more just joy you have in your life, which is what else is the purpose of all of this? All of the working and trying to make money and get the degree and the title and all this is at some place we think we'll just slow down. It's like, why not just slow down now? Why not do it yeah. exactly where you are? Yeah. Okay. I think that's some of the most important advice that exists in the world. I posted this thing on Instagram once. I was going to do a series on success and nonprofits and what different models of success look like because it's not every nonprofit should scale, for example. Some, sure, but not everyone. And so how do you start to find different models of what success looks like out there? And I remember when I posted about it, someone wrote me being, oh, I really need this, whatever. And I wrote her back and I was like, you could be one of the episodes. And I think that is this thing, right? We believe that the other person has it figured out. The other organization has it figured out. But if you don't learn the skills to cultivate space, joy, time, now, you're not going to when your organization is 5 million, 10 million, 100 million, because that's a skill, not a result of getting to some moment. Absolutely. And it's like the bigger it gets, it's just the more stress there is, the more things there are. It's not like all of a sudden it becomes easier. It's like now I have more employees and more things to handle. And so, yeah, if you don't learn how to cultivate it where you're at, there's never a time that it magically just changes and you learn how to slow down. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you one question about money because some of the things you've posted about money have really perked my ears up, particularly this intersection that we sit at in understanding our relationship to money, where we're taught a certain amount of hustle, scarcity mindset, capitalism, but also don't be greedy. Don't Mm -hmm. like want too Mm -hmm. much, feel ashamed. Thinking that this audience is mostly nonprofit professionals who are one, trying to figure out how to advocate for their own pay sometimes at reasonable levels because they're wildly underpaid in this sector, but also are advocating for money to move towards addressing systematic inequalities. What are some money strategies or prompts that you feel like folks should be asking themselves or their organizations? Yeah, I think you just have to really uncover what your thoughts are about money. You need to sit down and really just to ask yourself questions of what do I think about people that have money? What do I think Mm. about money? What do I think about what I should do with money? Because it's very illuminating. If your belief is that people that have money are evil and greedy and the reason that there's all these problems in the world and clearly you're not going to want to seek it. Clearly Mm. it's going to feel shameful to ask for more. If we have all been conditioned with money beliefs, money is as neutral it gets. It's a piece of paper. It's not even a piece of paper at this point. It's just like a digital number on your screen. And so I guess exercise that is really fascinating you guys can do right now is just close your eyes right now and think of the number that you have in your bank account. Okay. So everybody just, if you're driving, don't close your eyes, but like (laughs) think of the number that you have in your bank account. And then think of the feelings that come up. Name what those feelings are. Okay. It might be happy, excited, joy. It might be shame, embarrassment, fear, whatever. But I want you to realize that nothing has actually happened, right? You thought of a number and you conjured up all of these feelings from a number. The number doesn't mean anything, Mm. except there's so much loaded thoughts around that number, around, am I good with money? Should I have more by this age? Other people are so much Mm. better with it than me. I should have known how to invest it, whatever it is. That's all of the anxiety that comes around money. And for a lot of us, like you were just mentioning, one of the things I talk about is that it's not as though it's you were just born and you have a lot of us think our thoughts are true, right? As if, yeah, you shouldn't want more than you need. Let's say Mm. you should only want a certain amount. And if you want more then you're greedy, right? That's not some universal truth. It's just a thought that has been given to us. And it is a thought that is very prevalent in basically every religion. And so when you are raised around religion, which all of us pretty much are in every society, you have been taught that the love of money is the root of all evil and all of these sayings that we've been given. And so, of course, then you feel shame for wanting the resource that you absolutely need in every aspect of our society. Like where you live, where your kids go to school, the healthcare you can afford, all of that is run by money. And yet we're like, oh, but I can't want too much. I need it. Mm. So I need to want it and I need to work for it, but I don't want to be a bad person. And I will also say that like, when you really look at the history of money, what's fascinating is at the times that religions evolved, 
And in the beginning, when we used, let's say, gold or other materials as money, it was a very zero-sum game. Mm. It was like, if I take this gold, I'm taking it away from somebody else. There's only, let's say, a pie and what we take. So there was a direct correlation of if I make more, then you make less. Since the invention of credit, that just is no longer true. They literally print money. And it's not as though if I make more, I'm taking away from somebody else. Mm. And I think we just have to understand these concepts. We have to understand what was really big for me And I will say for your people, I was a public defender, right? And so I went to law school and I really went never wanting to make money. Like that wasn't my goal. Mm. And I had really prided myself on being a quote unquote good person. And it's part of this martyr syndrome, which I'm assuming a lot of people in the nonprofit world have, where if you're a good person, you don't actually care about money and you're going to go on and do these, I don't know, noble things, which doesn't concern itself with money. And we just do such a disservice by having that. Because one, like all that did for me was burn me out because I was working so hard and not being able to meet my own needs or even the the things that I wanted. I wasn't making as much money as I needed to pay off my loans. And so all that did was take me out of the game. I was like, I have to quit this. I can't continue doing Mm. this work, right? And I didn't know this stuff then. Of course, I should have been paid much more than I was being paid in order to do this vital service. And just because society didn't think it was worth it, doesn't mean that I needed to feel guilty for wanting that. Mm. And I think a lot of people who have then equated not wanting money with being a good person, again, it's just a thought. There is no basis for that. And you have to really look at like, how much is that thought hindering me in my life? How much is it hindering what I go after? How much is it hindering what I tend to seek? And I started really thinking about, I get to decide, okay, if I have the skills to make money, if I have Mm. the knowledge, yes, I have privilege, I have tons of things that other people didn't have. Why am I taking myself out of that game. I think especially as women, people of color, other marginalized groups, like the more we make money in this world that operates on money, the better it is for all of us. And so you have to start adopting those thoughts, right? And I'm not saying that it has to be the most important thing in your life and you have to want to forego everything to make as much money. You get to decide what you want with money. I just think that you have to uncover what are my thoughts. If I have deep shame around wanting money, that is going to affect everything I do in my career. And so I have to clean that up before I, am I going to ask for that raise? Am I going to advocate for myself? And I'll just say one more thing, because I think a lot of people might, I'll just tell you like a little anecdote. My husband also owns a company and he has about 50 employees. And he was noticing that at his annual reviews, all of the men, regardless of their performance, asked for raises. And it would ask for more than what he was, what would typically be given, like 15%, like very large raises, 20%. And just like Hmm. outrageous, like more. None of the women, and he has about 50% men and women, would ask for a raise. Not one. And he would give it to them based off performance, but not one would advocate for themselves. And this is part of because of their beliefs about money. Women have been socialized to believe, like, just be grateful you had a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. Don't rock the boat. Make sure everybody likes you. Don't talk about money. That's not acceptable. They're going to think you're greedy. They're going to not like you. I'm not saying there isn't misogyny and the patriarchy at play and women do get labeled difficult and women may get, there's different consequences. So I'm not trying to deny that all of those things exist. And while we should work on like the equal pay and ending that kind of pay gap, I think women in general, we have to realize like, how much am I also playing into this because I've socialized these thoughts? And so I don't advocate for myself. I don't look for the job that's paying more. I don't because I want to be a quote unquote good person. I want people to like me. And so that's why I just think it's so important to clear up these thoughts. It's because you under earn, right? Like you don't seek out places where you're maybe more valued. You don't go hard for your own qualifications to be like, this is what I deserve. Mm-hmm. You, you tend to underplay your hand. And that's because there's so much shame around asking for money. And so it's a matter of just getting what you deserve. A male is going to get that same amount at that company. Like knowing you deserve that requires you to clean up that guilt that you have for asking for it. Yes. Okay. Double clicking on all of that. (laughs) So do you want to tell everyone one where they can find you and like the best way to connect with you? And I also invite guests to share a nonprofit that they love that's near and dear to their heart for folks to check out if one comes to mind for you. Oh, yeah. So many. Thank you so much for that. You can find me at social media lessons from a quitter on Instagram is probably the place I hang out the most. So come by, send me a DM. But you can really find me anywhere at lessons from a quitter. My website is lessons from a quitter.com. And the podcast, since you're listening to podcasts (laughs) is under the same name, you can find it everywhere. I would love to hear from you guys. And let me know that you listen to this episode. Say hi. I love connecting with people. And I have a couple organizations that are really near and dear to my heart. One is 
Second Harvest Food Bank that's in Orange County. It's the largest food bank in, I don't know if it's Southern California or just Orange County, but they do some incredible work helping basically fund most of the food kitchens and pantries and a lot Mm. of the other food banks in and around Southern California. So if anybody is interested in what they do, they're doing some really incredible things of being able to leverage each dollar and be able to help the growing need of families that are food scarce. So I would say that's one that I would definitely check out. Amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation and for joining me today. It was wonderful having you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. There are so many points Goalie made during this conversation that are spot on, but I want to highlight a few that I'm still sitting with. Number one, that imposter syndrome is a manifestation of the fear and insecurity we bury. What if we could free ourselves from some of our imposter syndrome by just naming our fears and insecurities? What if that actually frees us? What's the first thing you would admit to yourself and maybe someone close to you? Number two, People-pleasing and perfectionism are the twin P's of self-doubt. Oof. I know that I am not alone in having my own complicated relationship with both of these things, but I think it's really helpful to understand that the better we know ourselves and the more we stand in that self-knowing, the less we will find ourselves unconsciously people-pleasing or aiming for perfection. Number three. I love the part of the conversation where we talk about the tendency to say, I don't have time. And goalies call in that if you feel like you're always in a hurry and never have time, it might be worth asking whether there's something you're trying to avoid. I think this is particularly important when it comes to fundraising. And this is actually something I find a lot. And sometimes the thing I'm trying to avoid is even just sitting quietly with myself to see what comes up and what comes through. Unfortunately, I think we use busyness a lot to distract ourselves from the things that might be a little harder to look at in our lives or in our fundraising or in our relationship to our organization. If you're feeling a little bit personally attacked by this part, go gently with yourself. This can be a tender thing to look at in your own life and in your organization, but it's really important. Okay. There are so many more amazing insights and takeaways from this episode. So head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab them now. You'll also find more information there about Goalie and what it looks like to work with her. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.